Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Beardy and the Geek. My name is Emmett Okuna. At this moment in time I would generally be introducing Ryan from Geek of Oz, but sadly he is taken ill with this pernicious flu that's doing the rounds at the moment. So it's just myself uh, today, but I do have a wonderful interview subject. Uh, Karen Beilhertz, who behind Kinds of Blue, thank you so much for coming. Ah, thanks for having me, Emmett. <laughs> it's Beelharts. Beelharts! I almost <laughs> had it. I went for the Deutsche pronunciation. <laughs> That's all right. That's totally fine. <laughs> Beelharts. Okay. Very good. Thanks for uh, agreeing to come on the show. I remember when you were promoting Kinds of Blue at Supernova, you had a crowdfunding project running with Possible to get the printed copy out. That's done. Yep. Um, your book, I've seen you've been interviewed about it a number of times as well on Kapow and Paul Kajeji did an interview with you as well for his podcast. Yep. Uh, so Kinds of Blue tells a story, a number of different stories with different artists, but you are the sole writer behind it. Um, oh, sole writer. No? There were 13 stories and I wrote 10 of them. Oh, I see. You're very good. And I did the editing and brought, drove the project and brought everything together and, and so, yeah, it's, it's not quite um, my book, but it's mostly my book, if that makes sense. Uh, at least we know you're not a megalomaniac now. No, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't have done it without some very, 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 very um, talented and very generous people, um, my collaborators, but also two of my friends, um, Rebecca G and Guan Un. Um, they also helped me and put, devoted a lot of their time and energy and efforts into making kinds of blue. So, yeah, definitely not a solo thing at all. But each of the stories within the collection describe a different experience with depression um, yeah. or mental illness, and you have these different artistic interpretations as well, which I think is a really nice effect because it, it expresses how depression can be a very personal thing, a very individual thing. And, and all the different kinds of it are, so you can't, it's not limited to one kind of experience, which, was that, was that what you had in mind when you came up with the idea of working with all these collaborators, or was that just a product of a necessity? Oh, it was more that my husband and I, we both live with depression, and he wouldn't mind me saying this. And so over the years that we've been married, um, we just kind of, built up, I guess, all this experience, I guess, of what it's like to live with depression. And so I felt like I had lots of material that I wanted to write about. And that's how it became translated into um, stuff like, you know, depression and, and um, work and depression and relationships and, and that sort of thing. And I have a lot of friends who suffer from depression because, I don't know, people who suffer from depression generally tend to congregate with other people who suffer from depression. And so, um, yeah, just drawing from their experiences as well, I, I kind of felt like um, I had a lot of things I wanted to say about it, but it wasn't just the straight, uh, I don't know how much you know about depression, um, but often when we talk about the subject, it's usually about things like um you know, the symptoms and um, things that help and, you know, all those are the standard things, but I, I wanted to have elements of that, but also, I guess, make it a bit more real for people, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah. Well, there's one particular story in the collection, and Jessica Green worked with you on it. It was real life, Yeah. Um, which I really loved. I love that story. Um, yeah. But it reminded me a lot of 
Woody Allen films from the period of the 80s because he did The Purple Rose of Cairo, which had a girl uh, fantasizing about a character on a cinema screen who then steps down and she falls in love with him and he falls in love with her and all the rest of it, um, apparently about to rescue her from a miserable life. And <laughs> what I remember, the reason that, that set off a chain of associations in my head, because I remember uh, when Woody Allen was at his popular peak, there was this idea of neuroses as being trendy. <laughs> all these characters, these these manic depressive characters in his movies were seen as funny. or And, and that was in its own way kind of help, harmful because it did sort of mention depression or bring depression to people's attention, but at the same time treated it as such a for comedy. And I always had a bit of a problem with that. Um, whereas what I liked about Kinds of Blue was that you had the day-to-day experience of depression. Mm. Um, I think feeling the the work with Mike Barry that you did that I thought that was really well done as well. Oh, thank you. Just the just even the experience of waking up in the morning and feeling feeling that down, you know. It's, yeah, it's I was kind of thinking of you know that episode in Buffy called The Body. Um, yes. When, yeah, and I remember Joss Whedon saying somewhere on the DVD that he wanted to convey the boringness of death in some way. And I think I thought about that. Uh, I vaguely remember thinking about that a lot as I was writing the script that there is that, that element, the boringness of depression in some ways. It's like, you know, this feels like crap, but you know, it just keeps on feeling like crap and there's nothing I can do about it. And um, yeah. And you can't get out of it as well. Mm. Mm. And that, yeah, exactly. And I think that's what's so interesting about the book. It is something which, has that sort of common touch to it. So it's not about uh, fighting a big demon called depression or something ridiculous like that. It's actually focused on the experience of it. Mm, yeah. So you have uh, had a number of collaborators on the book with you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've mentioned Jess and uh, Mike already, but you've also had uh, Tim Bywater did The Black Dog. That's one of the stories. Um, Melanie Borum. um Dan Gilmore, I loved that Toward the Waves. I loved that story. Yeah, he did uh, a good job, didn't he? I love the colours. It looks stunning. Uh, and it was funny, actually, because he told me afterwards that um, he he does that, um, what the guy does in the comic, you know, yeah. listening to music in the car or he's always commuting and just letting that express all the stress and, and depression of the day. But I didn't actually know that when I gave the script to him, so that was really cool. <laughs> Well, it is, once again, it's something that a lot of people could probably relate to, trying to lose yourself in a song. Mm. So it's, 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 uh, I remember that song, remember, Why Does It Always Rain On Me? And I always thought that was the perfect lyric for a song, because it's something that everyone feels, oh, yes, it's so unfair. (laughs) (laughs) Something that everyone feels that this is my song, um, because it's such a broad statement. But I was just wondering, out of all these people, I mean, have you any word on what they're doing now or what they're up to now since Kinds of Blue? Yep. Well, um, our cover artist, Melanie Borum, she's actually um, an artist in her own right. And, um, yeah, she. I think this is a problem when the book came out. I'm trying to remember what's happened in the interim. Um, she did an exhibition because um, her, yeah, her current interest is in hair and how – you know, human hair has this ick factor, but it's also, you know, quite intimate if somebody strokes your hair or touches mm. your hair or something like that. And so she's been working a lot in that sort of medium. And um, 
I think doing a few portraits and stuff as well. Um, Dan Gilmore, I know he's been working on a webcomic, but I don't know if it's public, so I'm not sure how much I can say about that. <laughs> we can move on. We can move on. <laughs> he's very good, so if we see his name anywhere, we, we'll just jump on it. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, Kathleen actually is probably the most um, prominently prolific um, one. She got nominated for a World Fantasy Award for a comic that she did called Finishing School. But unfortunately, I can't remember what book it appeared in, so I'm really sorry about that, Kathleen. Um, yeah, um, she didn't win, unfortunately, but um, I just thought it, that was really cool that um, the powers that be who run the World Fantasy Award recognise her talent because she is supremely talented. She did a book cover for Delia Sherman, who's a um, yeah SF writer, and she's done a couple, a couple of other book covers as well, but I'm not familiar with the... Um, writer's work, so I know that one has moonshine in the title and I can't remember the others, I'm really sorry. Um, yeah, but it, it's been really cool seeing her work um, develop, and she does such beautiful, beautiful stuff. And she also writes as well. She's a, a writer in her um, her own right, and she's had a couple of things published in stuff like um, Andromeda Spaceways magazine and um, I can't remember where else. Um... Yeah, in terms of the others, I'm not quite in touch with them, so I'm not sure exactly what they're doing creatively. Um, I know Jemima's been working on, like, a children's book and another comic, and I think she was also involved with the animated film (laughs) as well. Um, But a lot of the others um, aren't, like, they only did the comic because I asked them to. (laughs) Um, People like Jess Green had never done that before, um, but Jess Green is also illustrated some children's picture books um yeah. we used to work together and so she illustrated them as part of her work for that publishing company um, ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah her style in that is is lovely and it is very clearly meant to evoke like a child a childlike illustration but it's actually quite charming yeah 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 i really like her work yeah mm. so i mean on that point though um did you just put the call out for contributors or was it a case of you knew each of these individuals and just approached them one by one? I knew most of them personally. Um, I, yeah, seem to have hung around a lot of artists over the years and just met people. Um, it helped that I used to go to a church where the majority of people um, were involved in the visual arts some in some form. And so I was able to kind of, draw on those contacts and go, hey, I, I want to do this anthology of five-page comics. Do you want to do it with me? And um, a lot of them said yes, which was really, really lovely. And other people who I didn't know as well were like, um, well, Jemima, I knew her brother. Um, Mike Berry, I probably haven't spent more than an hour in his company face-to-face, but I should have <laughs> known him online. <laughs> He's one yeah. of those people. Yeah, so he uh, used to run – a website called gracenotworks.com and um, I kind of knew him from there and then we reconnected years later on Twitter and then I noticed his his avatar was um, it looked like he, he'd drawn it himself and he said oh yes I'm really into comics and it turned out that he'd submitted a pitch to Image at one stage and mm. so we got talking about comics and so when I was doing this anthology I said oh would you love would you like to work together and he said absolutely which was fantastic um, Paul Wang Pan, who did um, the second story, what was it called, The Real You, 
Um, my husband actually met him in um, the line to a charity screening of Serenity. <laughs> 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 Somehow got talking about, yeah, talking about comics and, and Paul at the time was um, doing an illustration course at TAFE and was really interested in, and um, it actually took, I don't know, a couple of years before I actually met him face to face and, and um, then a bit longer before we actually worked together on something. So, yeah, it, it's kind of funny. It's, it was just kind of people I knew or people who knew um, other people I knew. And um, I didn't actually – yeah, I'm a bit of a control freak. So And because I didn't quite know what I was doing and I've never done anything like this um, – I didn't put out the word to other comic creators because at the time I didn't really know that many. <laughs> and also mm. I didn't know if it was really fair to invite them to do something where, yeah, at the time I wasn't even sure it was actually going to, you know, I could actually pull it off. If yep. makes, yeah. Mm. And also there'd be a disparity of experience as well. I mean, if yeah. you're trying to, if you have a vision in your mind, you want to wait, get it done a certain way and then this person's telling you well no that won't work <laughs> I'm a professional <laughs> so I can see how that could be a disadvantage but it's funny you mentioned Mike Barry pitching to Image because even looking at feeling it it does look like a very it does have that sort of American uh, style to it the very clear form and everything so I can I think they missed a trick not taking him on if they haven't no they didn't take him on <laughs> oh, that's a shame you mentioned before like, the idea of it coming to you, and we, we'll get to the source of your inspiration for getting into comics shortly. Before we do, the possible campaign. I just wonder if you could maybe touch on crowdfunding in, in your experience, because just recently we spoke to um, T-Rex Jones himself on right. his Sebastian Hawks campaign, and it certainly has brought to light that there is a bit of a debate going on, both internationally and locally. Yeah. And just the viability of crowdfunding, there seems to be uh, fairly extreme views on this. So I just wanted your take on it as someone who has actually successfully funded her book, gone through the sequence. Do you think it's something that is viable or do you think there's particular problems that need to be addressed? Yeah. <laughs> um, I can talk a bit about why we turned to it. Certainly. Yeah, basically we put the entire manuscript together um, and that that happened, that coincided with me um, having my first child. <laughs> so it wasn't, the timing wasn't terrific. But, um, yeah, I, I guess I always thought, okay, the major problem, because obviously if you want to publish these days, it's really easy. Print on demand is really easy. Um, even, you know, doing ebooks and whatnot, not so much for comics, but certainly for, for novels, it's, it's massively easy these days. But the major problem is distribution. And for, for us, what I decided to do was, um, shop the manuscript around to different publishers and see if anybody was interested while at the same time, being realistic about the fact that it was an anthology and anthologies usually aren't great sellers and also none of us were very well known. So mm. there's not really that kind of um, pull there um, for your average comics reader or even um, people interested in depression, quite frankly. So 
when I think it was after six months or so, six or eight months of me sending it out and getting some really lo- lovely comments back and people who wished us well but said, you know, it doesn't fit with our lineup or it's not the kind of thing that we do, which is completely valid. I totally understand. I used to work in publishing. Um, I thought, well, crowdfunding seems to be a, a good way to get stuff out there. And I think at the time there weren't that many comics projects that were um, crowdfunded. Like from memory, I think I got the idea more from seeing what was happening with Christopher Price, who was making that short film of – sorry, Christopher Salmon, uh, who's making the film of uh, Neil Gaiman's short story called The Price. And, yeah, I just thought, well, this is one way that we could get things out there and get them printed without having to, you know, have this massive financial outlay ourselves and – and that's also a good way to, to figure out whether or not, you know, people would actually want to buy this as a product. Um, cause that was another major concern. You know, you work so hard on this thing and it's like, well, okay, well, I like it, but I don't know if everybody else would like it. Um, so, um, when I looked at all the, um, crowdfunding options, obviously Kickstarter is out of the question because it's for, um, people with US bank accounts and Indiegogo, their model is that you get whatever you raise, but if you don't meet your goal, then their admin costs are a bit higher. And I kind of thought, well, if the market isn't there, it's not really worth it. So I was really happy when um, my friend Beck suggested Possible because their model's a bit more like Kickstarter. You know, nobody gets charged unless they meet the goal. And um, I did put a lot of thought into it and did a budget and everything. And, I figured out that we probably need around 200 pre-orders because it's basically, you know, pre-ordering the book um, for it to be viable. And it was just amazing to me that it was that so many people um, read it online and loved it and, and um, pledged. And, yeah, we were funded like in less than three days, which was <laughs> insane. <laughs> uh, I think it was your um, – was it 142% funded? Wasn't that it? Or – 142% by the end of the campaign. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. So, but yeah, I mean, that that is, I think, the appeal of it. it is, as you say, it's a way of getting direct feedback on the viability of the project, mm. um, but also you're not having to jump through so many financial hoops just to get it made. Yep, and so, there's more, I guess, more direct com- communication between you and your reader and that there are ways, I mean, we didn't do this, but there are ways to make them feel like part of the creative process and that they're in a way getting behind an idea and uh, a movement. I suppose that's the way that in a sense, Amanda Palmer has done her campaign from what I can gather. I guess in terms of pitfalls, there's that whole, you know, the whole thing about, Oh, will they actually deliver on, on what they've promised? And also will they deliver in a timely fashion? Um, and yeah, I, I've heard about certain um, crowdfunding campaigns where it's become, a lot more difficult than the um, the initiator anticipated because of other costs that they hadn't, you know, foreseen and other problems that have come up and, and so on and so forth. Um, so you really, like if you want to run a crowdfunding campaign, you really, really, really need to do your research and to figure out and have a plan and figure out exactly how much it's going to cost and have the funding goal reflect that and, um, yeah, just, I guess, have some sort of contingency plan if, things do go wrong or if things you know if your printer doesn't fulfill on time or all that sort of stuff um yeah fortunately we didn't have those problems but at the same time when we did our campaign 
I don't think I actually specified when we would deliver the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> These days, probably people would probably want to know when the book will come um, because crowdfunding, I think, has become a lot more prominent and a lot more people are supporting those sort of campaigns and projects and things. Um, but even so, like, I supported um, Kazu Kibuyoshi's Daisy Cutter. Did you see that campaign? I did. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't join in. I'm afraid, but I, I did see it. I was aware of it. Yeah. Oh, it's such a wonderful book. Oh, I really, really love his work. And Daisy Cutter is just a fabulous, fabulous story. Um, and in a way, you know, it was a no-brainer because they were just reprinting something that he'd put out ages ago, which apparently no publisher wanted to reprint, which I just think is mad considering you know, his work and um, his audience and fan base and all the rest of it. Um, I don't think he specified either when the book was going to ship, but um, I don't know. I, I suppose as a, as a supporter, I wasn't really concerned because I was confident that he and his team would deliver. Whereas if you didn't have that relationship with the, the people, the crowdfunding people, then I think that would be a lot harder, I suppose, in terms of, yeah, trying to make sure that that relationship is a good one and that it continues and that everybody's happy even if there are delays and, and unforeseen things and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because there is, I mean, this could be both a blessing and a major criticism of crowdfunding, that a lot of these successful campaigns, one of the notable uh, common elements is that the person behind them is something of a personality. Um, or is someone with a lot of high regard, who a lot of people feel a lot of high regard for. So the the example I would think of straight away would be Tim Schafer, who's this cult video game creator known for high quality material, known for very funny stories, very funny plots and dialogue, perennially failing to get to make a profit with his games, mm-hmm. uh, seen as something a high as a high risk investment by the major publishers. But he goes to Kickstarter and I think he was like 500% overfunded just because people were, he was directly appealing to his fans and they all wanted to support him. Yeah. Uh, rather than having to wait for five years of negotiation with a publisher to get a substandard product, if yeah. he's getting the capital directly, they know he's going to take that and he's going to make a game that can be made with that money. Okay. So, it's that, that's the trade-off because then on the other hand, the people who have no profile, who have no standing, how is this going to be a viable option for them? So that was something people were saying that like the likes of Amanda Palmer, um, had this huge fan base who would support her. Mm. So if she did this, she'd get the money directly. Whereas if you're an aspiring writer artist, uh, with your dream book in mind, but you don't have any kind of presence, you, you basically have to pound the pavement like you would have had to anyway and create a name for yourself. Yeah, you have to build your fan base and also show that you, you can deliver. That's why I'm always suspicious of projects where like the end product isn't anywhere near completion. Um, yeah, like I, I'd want to see, I guess, something of what they can do <laughs> yeah. first before I supported it, um, Yeah, which is something I've been thinking through with um, – the next project I've been working on as well. Mm. Oh well, so shall we? Shall we discuss that? What are you <laughs> working on currently, Karen? <laughs> sorry, sorry. Um, yeah, so I, I've been working on a graphic novel script, and 
the story is a bit hard to describe. It's basically boy meets girl, and they the boy lives on a, a space station with his family, and the family are missionaries, and they're kind of they've gotten stranded there because they were meant to go to a planet, and the planet got blown up by a suicide bomber, and so they're just kind of been stuck on the space station. Well, they they've kind of decided, oh, that's where we'll um, make our our home, and then. One night, the boy is—he's like 23. Shouldn't call him a boy. Um, <laughs> meets a girl, <laughs> and she, yeah, she's just kind of come a, a, as a stopover on her way to somewhere else. But then she gets stranded there and ends up with no money, and his family ends up taking her in just for you know until things clear up, and because the um, space station gets shut down because there's a bomb threat or terrorist attack or something like that. So sorry, the, the reason why I was talking about that was because I was thinking this is a graphic novel. How <laughs> how would I be able to actually get this out there and still be able to um, yeah work with an artist to make sure that you know um, this project isn't infringing too much on our time mm-hmm. without the um, the recoup of costs and, and so on and so forth. And so. My current thinking, and I don't know if this is the best way to do it, but I can't think of any other avenues, is to work and produce the pages as much as possible and then put them online as a web comic, but not all of them, like put up yep. know, um, maybe a third of the book or half the book or something, and then build the audience up that way and then see through crowdfunding or by submitting it to publishers, whether the publisher would be interested, because that would be, in a sense, the best outcome, because they have got the distribution channels. Um, and if they think that the um, the book has got a ready-made audience, then, you know, hopefully it would be a no-brainer for them. Um, but if the publishers aren't interested, then go through crowdfunding there and, yeah, be able to communicate directly with the audience that way. It's it's a tried and proven method, uh, especially with books, um, because I'm sure through your experience in the publishing industry as well that you're aware of authors who did just that. They put their first chapter or whatever online and got enough feedback to be able to bring that to the attention of a publisher and say, hey, all these people want to read the rest of the story, give me some money. But the, the example I always think of is uh, John Dies at the End by David Wong. Um, I don't know if you've read that book no sorry (laughs) deeply weird book deeply weird book and you can tell that he was writing it in a serialized form because he was putting out chapters on this website and it became so popular the i think he put the entire book out for free on his website and then he took it to a publisher they published a book the book was a hit and now it's been made into a movie so (laughs) so it's 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 definitely something you can do and i can definitely see it working um, what I will be interested in to see is who you choose as an artist and how that's going to... I do have someone in mind, but I haven't asked the person yet. <laughs> ah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll let them, let them be surprised. We won't ruin the surprise for them then. I figured it was important to um, grasp the scope of the project first before asking someone to come on this ridiculous, crazy journey with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, before we we mentioned in passing that uh, you had an idea to do very short comic pages, and I had heard you discuss this previously, that you were inspired by Mr. Kieran Gillen, 
Yes. Uh, um, <laughs> would you care to talk about that, perhaps? Yes. Actually, it was Dan Gilmore who he picked up an issue of Phonogram, the first series, um, and I think it was purely on the strength of the cover, and he lent it to me, and I thought, wow, um, I don't really understand this, but I really like it, <laughs> because it was it was like a issue four or five. It was in the middle of the run anyway, and um, from that, I eventually went on to um, get Rue Britannia, and then they started doing The Singles Club, the second um, series, and um, yeah, I actually, because I loved Rue Britannia so, so much and what it said about um music and and people's relationship to music um yeah i i don't normally do this because um and i don't know if it's if it's um a good thing to admit on a podcast called um, beauty and the geek but I, i'm not a single issues buyer <laughs> and, no, that's that's a distressingly common statement these days <laughs> i know um and yeah I, i'm not as widely read um in comics as i'm sure a lot of the audience of this podcast are um but because of my love for phonogram i went out and, and bought all the single issues as they came which was turned out to be very difficult because i i think i only started about two or three issues in and then had to get some from america and so on and so forth um and of course it was around the time when um, I first got on Twitter and discovered that, I, oh, I can follow Kieran Gillen and David McKelvey on, on Twitter and find out all sorts of things about what they're interested in, even what they listen to. Um, I actually ended up following them on all these social medias. I'm sure they think I'm a stalker or something. It's just <laughs> really pathetic. Um, um, and then Kieran tweeted a link one day to his blog where he talked about, um, I think, in answer to the, to the, you know, the question he always gets asked, um, how do you break into comics? And he just said, oh, I just started off doing all this five-page stuff. And um, it was just a throwaway line in his blog post where he said five pages was about as much as I could convince an artist to do for me. Um, any more than that was kind of imposing given that, you know, neither of them were really getting paid or anything. So it was really, you know, um, a freebie sort of gig. And, and somehow, and I can't describe how, but, you know, the, a light bulb went on my head and I just thought, oh, this is one way – that I could possibly make comics. <laughs> I mean, you know, he talks about, um, and, and, you know, on Twitter, certainly it's professionals when they do that um, make comics hashtag, they just say, go out and make comics. That's the best way to learn comics. And, you know, I'm a writer. I don't draw. <laughs> and it's like, okay, but how do I make comics? And then, you know, for writers, they say, oh, you just meet people on message boards and go and make comics. And it's like, yeah, but I still don't get it. <laughs> and <laughs> somehow, yeah, just that, just that throwaway line by Kieran Gillen just made me think, oh, this is a way forward. I could do this. I could write five-page scripts and then take them to artists and say, here, do you, do you want to do this with me? And all of a sudden it just became so much more viable. It's a bit strange. <laughs> um, and I also thought, oh, in a way, like it's a good way to um, make lots of comics at once, to, to, have, um, to write all these scripts and to put them out there because – you know, everybody in the comics world says, you know, you start out by doing small things and doing lots of small things. I thought, oh, I can do lots of small things at once <laughs> in some way. Um, and now I'd like to move on to longer things, which is a bit more challenging. But, um, yeah, that's where the idea came from. And certainly following both Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey on Twitter is a lot of fun, <laughs> actually. I really, really enjoy um, the, st the stuff that they tweet about. And um, it it's also interesting because – 
I think they and I have um, overlapping tastes in music. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's like, yeah, I just sort of feel like I have a bit of, of an affinity with them through that and through Phonogram and, and all the rest of it, which is a bit weird and stalkerish. But anyway. <laughs> I, I have to ask, though, I mean, when you were reading Phonogram, were you already familiar with, like, Pulp and Supergrass and Gene and Equibelly and all those bands in the Britpop era? Were they were oh, you familiar with them at all? or Not Britpop. Um, yeah, so certainly Britannia was a bit harder, but actually I started listening to the Twilight Singers through Britannia because they mentioned the Afghan Whigs and, you know, the lead singer um, went on to be um, the front man for the Twilight Singers and um, the comic I did with Dan Gilmore, Towards the Ways, that's mm-hmm. kind of based on a Twilight Singers song because <laughs> it used to be – actually, it's funny because my, my husband and I both used to do this. We used to go to counselling and it was a long drive back from the counsellor's office and for some reason at one particular period in time we'd both be listening to the Twilight Singers um, album Powder Burns in the car stuck in rush hour traffic. <laughs> <And> <laughs> that became the genesis for um, Towards the Waves. Um, with the Singles Club, I actually was a bit more familiar with the music, mm-hmm. especially the pipettes. And I think, yeah, it just was um, massively exciting in a very um, fangirl, poppy sort of um, almost famous sort of way where it's like, oh, my goodness, you know, he's done an issue called Pull Shapes and I know the song. And, and the, the issue such perfectly captures the mood of that particular song. I don't know if you've ever heard the pipettes. But, yes, um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that whole yeah, um, skiffle um, dancing and um, yeah, about dancing and, and wanting to dance with one particular guy and and I just it's that kind of fusion um, and this is the thing I always forget to say about phonogram is that um, with comics being that fusion of words and pictures, the wonderful wonderful thing about phonogram is it's words and pictures and music and. Yeah. That's one of the things I really, really love about it. So, yeah, I'm not familiar with all the music, but I really appreciate being introduced to new things um, through them. And also, um, yeah, having that that overlap of of musical tastes and things with them as well. It's pretty cool. And I love the way that they capture that that thing about the different aspects of um, people's relationship with music. Though I don't understand all of it. Like, I find the... um, in the singles club, the issue with Laura and the issue with Lloyd, um, I think in a sense, yeah, they're the most puzzling to me because they don't, they're not as easy. They're not as accessible as say, um, the one with Penny, full shapes or the one at the end, um, with, um, kid with knife, which, you know, are a bit more, um, mainstream and, and accessible for people. But I kind of like that it's a puzzle as well that, um, because the issues are so short, they kind of, turn over and over in my brain and I feel like I get quite close to grasping what he's on about, but not quite, if that makes sense. Well, what I love about it, the experience of reading Phonogram, is that if I don't understand the musical reference, it reminds me of that time during the 90s when I was younger and, you know, I would meet groups of people who'd be talking about this band and I would never have heard of the band before. And I have to pretend to know what they're talking about so I could <laughs> listen, get enough information to then fake it and then find out what this band was. And, you know, that didn't always work. <laughs> <laughs> didn't always work at all. But, like, sometimes, you know, you can actually discover a really, really interesting band 
just mm. by absorbing all this talk and everyone wanted to wanted you to believe that they possessed all the arcana about certain lead singers or certain or the drummers or the all the historical lines up of the bands and what happened to the bands and you know everyone had this list of information in their heads about these different pop stars so he's and, he's tapped into that yeah and and the other really lovely thing is um all i find that in um among my circle of friends we don't actually listen to the same music um in fact yeah of all my friends there's only like a couple where we have very similar tastes and, and obviously me and my husband um yeah i think me and my husband we listen to the, the most the most similar things um than anybody I know, of, of course. Though I shouldn't say of course. Some marriages aren't like that, are they? Um, <laughs> but um, I mean, his his taste is very, in a sense, broader and more eclectic than mine. But yeah, I share more in common with him musically than I do with anybody else. Um, and because of that, I feel like, um, yeah, it, it's rare to find somebody else who thinks about a particular song or a particular band in exactly the same way that I do. And mm-hmm. yeah, and that can be quite isolating, I think, in, in some ways, because, you know, it's so subjective and, you know, you listen to one song and someone gains this from it or someone doesn't hates it completely and it could be your, your favorite song. Um, and so it's kind of nice to kind of feel like that when reading Phonogram, oh, these people are fans just like I, I am of, this particular music, this particular band, and, and and so on, and there are commonalities in the way in the way that we view it, in the way that we enjoy it, and um, the way that you would if you were at the rock concert or something, and that's really nice. It's yeah, because you just don't get that at real in real life normally. Well, I, I don't anyway. <laughs> I don't know if you. <laughs> no, no. I, I I mean, I remember the period, and I remember that there was this extraordinary tribalism about which band was your favorite band? And that's always been the way, but obviously the media around Britpop was such that it became much more of a, b- a bigger concern. So you had to love Oasis or you had to love Blur, and that was it. Those are the choices you had. And I remember a article in the Irish Times in the mid-90s when they said, we were all expecting a final victor between... Damon Alburn and Liam Gallagher. And then Jarvis Cocker comes in on his clapped out little push bike, steals the crown and races off. <laughs> and I was like, that's exactly what it was. Cause I was like, it was always pulp for me. Pulp was the one I loved. And, uh, they'd been around for longer and they had a sort of class warfare background to them as well. Cause they were talking about living on estates and they were talking about being down and out in London and, uh, this idea of, a future society that was promised in the 1970s, which never arrived, because mm-hmm. uh, England had all these great, great plans for their cities, but they all sort of collapsed. And when I saw that they chose that cover for Phonogram of um, Hardcore, the Pulp album, mm-hmm. um, I thought that was yes, yes, this is the comic for me. <laughs> <laughs> these guys know what the priorities are. So, yeah, it, it's it. I think what he he did there was very clever because he did tap into that sort of personal uh, insight we all have for music, but in different ways. We all feel that music is really important to us because it says something about us. Mm-hmm. Your choice in music says who you are, and that's how people identify you. Like, 
God, God help you if you like Taylor Swift. You know, that's all I'm saying. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear, she's like the cotton candy of music. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, something what you were saying there before about Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey being quite open on social media mm. is, I think, a very good point because if you read a lot of comics criticism down through the years, uh, serious critics tend to talk about comics as if they, they were talking about a book. And they use the same language, they use the same theory. And what I think is interesting now about with social media is a lot of comic creators are sort of, are letting us see their process, doing mm. us on a bit. And um, I don't know if you saw the Patrick Meany documentary on Grant Morrison talking about gods, but he actually has him do his own thumbnail sketches before he writes the script. He works out what it would look like, and then he writes it, and then he hands the script to the artist. Which that way he understands how the page will look, so that he can actually work the script around that. Mm. But the image comes first, and then he gets an actual artist to finish it off. Whereas if you read criticism of Grant Morrison, it's always how literary his style is and how. You know, it's it's based on all these different theories and obscure books he's read and all the rest of it. But in fact, he starts with the image, mm-hmm. which doesn't really get addressed in that kind of criticism. So I, I think it's wonderful that, you know, you engaging with uh, Gillen over Twitter led you to this project yourself, you know, because that, that was probably, if if it had not been for that, maybe the inspiration wouldn't have come. Yeah, exactly. Um, and they've also, um, in fact, a lot of the comics professionals have been so, um, generous with advice, um, and just with different bits and pieces, like, um, in the, um, credits section of Kinds of Blue at the front, I actually thank a whole bunch of them. I remember, uh, yeah. <laughs> Cause yeah. Everybody, all these people who gave you feedback, wasn't it? No, not all of them. A lot of them, like, um, CB Sibulski, probably yes. pronounced Around. Wrong, yeah. So, talent scout for Marvel. He just tweeted various things about um, breaking into comics or making comics, and um, just found all that sort of stuff helpful. And, and it's really lovely that he's so open about that kind of thing because he wants to see good comics made. And even Jordan D. White, who's an editor at Marvel, um, uh, I think he even, yeah, he th- he had a form spring at one stage and he actually answered a question, which. Um, was in a way one of the things that helped me start my graphic novel script was because I asked him, is it actually worth it to try and write a graphic novel if you're just a writer, <laughs> you can't draw, um, and it may not even see the light of day, and and maybe it's better off if you wrote it in prose instead. And, and he was like, well, you know, it's always worth trying it and, and giving it um, your best shot and, um, you know, if you love the medium, then it's worth doing. And yeah, so people like him and um, even Mark Ellaby, who's a UK um, writer who's not as, sorry, writer artist who's not as well known. He does um, Chloe Noonan, Monster Hunter, um, and his um, daily comic, which is now stopped, but Ellabisms. Um, yeah, he's just really um, happy to answer my questions about, oh, you know, um, how do you get stuff printed and how you do in terms of print runs and, and all that sort of stuff. So it's really nice living in this age of, of social media where there's more immediacy there and um, the professionals are just really generous with their time and with their wisdom and um, yeah, advice and things like that. 
Yeah, I actually sent copies to both Jamie McKelvey and Kieran Gillen, and um, yeah, I just got some a lovely reply from both of them, <laughs> just saying thank oh. you. Yeah, I just thought, oh, this is, this is a bit dinky, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. A little comic after them. Um, yeah, but it, it was just lovely that um, that they were generous in that way and, and acknowledged it and, and actually thought it was really sweet and, and everything. So. No, I mean, Gillen's very right on. Yeah, I remember, uh, I think Kieran Gillen linked to a, was a post on CBR um, talking about body shapes. Yep. And how a lot of the superheroes, you know, they're described as having Olympic grade abilities. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And they're all drawn the same way. And but if you look at actual Olympic athletes, you see, you know, some of them are, are very tall and some of them are very short and and, and so on and so forth. And and um, it didn't seem like any of them had big boobs. So <laughs> um, I just thought that was that was really um, interesting to point out, and that they that they are very aware of the sort of things in the way that they write and draw comics. Um, so Young Avengers will be out in, I think, less than a week. And, um, yeah, he's been writing introductions to each of the characters. And I've just found that quite interesting and in- insight into his process and how he thinks about particularly the female characters because I think he's talked about two of them so far, Kate and Miss America, Um yeah, and from the artwork, it looks like, you know, they're not your standard, um, if you can call it, female superhero template <laughs> in some ways, which is quite refreshing, I find, yeah. Mm. Miss America, I remember when she was first created for a miniseries, and she was always designed to be um, a comment on the portrayal of young uh, superhero uh, women, young women mm-hmm. Uh, who are dressed costumed as superheroes, she was always supposed to be sort of reaction to that. Um, both in her ethnicity and in the fact that her body shape isn't the same and she visibly sweats and she, you know, <laughs> she's very aggressive and, um, I thought it was a very interesting idea. And I'm, I'm, so I'm, I'm really happy to hear that he's using her because she's a, she's a character with a lot of potential. So that's, that's good to know. Mm. Very good. Well, is there something else you'd like to mention before we wrap up or, Let's just say, where can people find you? You, You've mentioned Twitter a number of times. How will people find you on Twitter? Sure. I'm on Twitter at kbeels, which is K-B-E-I-L-Z. You can find Kinds of Blue at hivemindedness.com forward slash kinds of blue, just one word. Um, And it's also available in ebook form for Kindle and um, through the iBook store and on Graphically. and we also have a Facebook page where we just post links every now and then to do with the book, but also to do with depression. Mm. And um, yeah, I think feedback from that has always surprised me because I, I think, oh, I found this really interesting, but I don't know if somebody else would. And, and it amazes me the number of times when people click like and actually do find it interesting. Um, on the games note, sorry, this is a tangent. Um, mm-hmm. no. Is it a lady named Jane? Was it? Oh, I can't remember her last name. Um, she did a TED talk, um, I think, in the last couple of months, and it was talking about, um, anyway, using gaming to help improve your life. Right. And there were themes that tied in with depression because uh, she came up with this game because she was at a point in her life where she had had um, 
surgery and the recovery period was extremely hard for her and she couldn't do a lot of the things that she normally enjoyed doing and ended up getting really, really depressed. And she reckons that she was actually suicidal mm-hmm. and then she decided to, um, yeah, play a game, design a game, invite other people to play it with her and that helped her recovery and it was just really simple stuff like, um, yeah, getting achievement unlocked for going for a walk or um, talking to someone and, and saying something positive to them about what she appreciated about about them and, and things like that. So um, I just thought that was a really, really good talk. So Very good. So um, was there anything else? Oh, I was just wondering if I should mention that we only have 30 print copies left of Kinds of Blue. So ah. <laughs> should get in quick. Yes. <laughs> keyboards, keyboards engage now. It's a, it's a very good book. Um, it's very worthy cause as well. And as you said, uh, because people, um, are able to even talk amongst themselves through your Facebook page about issues relating to depression, I feel that's a very positive development as well. You've sort of opened that gate to discussing the issues through this book. So that's something that I think everyone should support. Yeah. And I think more understanding of mm. depression and mental illness is always helpful. Um, so that it does, it not only helps, um, those who are suffering from depression, but helps the people around them. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Exactly. Very good. Well, thanks very much for, uh, joining me, Tony Karen. It's been an absolute pleasure. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, folks out there, if you're listening, uh, you can find this on themobilesreport.blogspot.com.eu. We're also on iTunes. If you can give us a rating and let us know what you think of the show, maybe some suggestions for future interviews or content, that would be great. Uh, but until next time, thanks for listening and uh, read local comics. All the best. Cheers. <laughs>